Wow, just wow. Um, I've watched from afar for a few years now, and uh, I've been to a couple of games, watch Coach Tommy's team play. I've seen the 904 in action, and to get, them to, meet, to get to meet them today has been a phenomenal experience. I've been so impressed by just the level of support. You know, they are supporters. They're not just fans. They've been through so much, and they deserve so much back in return. So what an opportunity to come here and uh, try and provide some of that, yeah. Welcome to No Pyro No Podcast, an Armada fancast where we talk about all things Jacksonville Armada. I'm your host, Daniel Dad Johnson, and with me on this episode, we have Brian. Good evening. Ian. Hi, everyone. This is Eeyore. I mean, Ian. Oh, so we're, we're on Saturday in this time. We have the veteran James. James, how are you? Good evening, lads. How you doing? Oh, doing well, doing well. And so with us today is the gentleman you heard at the front of the episode, Armada women's coach, David Goff. David, how are you today? I'm excellent. Thanks very much, guys. It's good to have you. Um, so it was a great reception at the uh, anniversary party for you on uh, on Sunday, yeah? Yeah, it was uh, it was really special. It was it was great to get to meet to so many people and chat, just hear the stories and uh, really made everything feel real. Yeah, there's no party like an Armada party for sure. Mm. Did you All get right. baptized in a pyro? Did you get? Did you leave before the smoke was broken out? I did. I did. I did. I've seen the pyro at the games, but not not on Sunday. Okay, you missed it. That that was that was a little bit later in the uh, near the end of the festivities. Uh, so don't worry, you'll get to see plenty as the season goes on. All right, so we're going to dive in, and uh, as as you know, they they say with Marvel nowadays, they talk about people's origin stories. So let's get a little bit of what uh, what's the David Goff origin. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm from originally from a small town, about three and a half thousand people, uh, called Abertridu in the South Wales, um, which is in the UK. Uh, for those of you that, that are not aware that England and Wales are two different countries, um, but yeah, I, I grew up in you know huge sporting heritage. Wales is a great sporting heritage as a country, and even though we're part of the British Olympic team, um, you know we have a number of national teams in other sports like soccer and rugby and uh, you know, you kind of grow up hand in hand with sports in the in the winters, and the you know you're playing soccer or rugby, and in the in the summer you're playing cricket or tennis, uh, especially goes, when Wimbledon's it, on. It goes back to that old old phrase: when there's a win, it's a great win for Great Britain, and when it's a loss, it's a loss for Wales. Yeah, something like yeah. that. I mean, <laughs> in in recent in recent years, we've had fantastic players come through, like Jess Fishlock and Gareth Bale, and everyone's kind of started to understand a little bit that uh, you can be two things: you can be British and you can be Welsh. So, yeah, my my story started off like that, just kicking a ball around, loving, uh, competing, and playing sports, and uh, really just went from there. To be honest. So, so tell us, how did you end up uh, uh, stateside? Yeah, well, long story short, I um, I embarked on a coaching career quite early. I was a bang average player. I got to be honest. I was I was once described as running with my parking brake on, so that tells you everything you need to know about me as a player. But uh, <laughs> I, I realised pretty early on I wasn't going to play for Wales. So um, I was actually in a school session. It was a, a rugby session, and a, a guy had come in to do a you know like a model session really, and he was wearing a Welsh rugby union tracksuit. And I, I looked at this guy, you know, and I'm thinking, wow, you know, this is, this is amazing. Like, who is this? What job has this guy got? And um, he was a rugby development officer. And, and I was like, they got one of them for football? And they did. They, so that's basically uh, 
how I got started in coaching early, early on. I volunteered my time. I was with the Football Association of Wales from around 17 years onwards, all through my undergraduate degree. And uh, they took great care of me, helped, you know, got me through my coaching badges. Um, and I embarked on this career where I, you know, the next best thing to play, and I suppose, is coaching. And early on in my career, early 20s, I came out to the US with a company called Challenger Sports. And there might be uh, a few people who know who they are. And you basically traveled around the States um, doing soccer camps every week, you know, fun camps for kids and communities. And every Sunday you'd get in your car and drive off to another state and deliver another course. And you do this kind of all summer, you know. Uh, this is the days before the internet, by the way. So I'm taking myself a little bit. I used to have the old MapQuest uh, <laughs> things out, printed out, and you're trying to follow where you're going. And mm. I remember getting getting lost once on the way from Arkansas to Oklahoma. And, uh, you know, you're trying to use the road signs like back in the day. But, uh, yeah, long story short, I was out here for a summer in 2004 doing that and um, stayed in touch with some people over the years. It was very important for me. I want to go back to Britain and have... Uh, there's things I wanted to do in Britain. I wanted to work in professional football. I wanted to, you know, get ingrained in the culture of of, of obviously what soccer is in the UK. Um, and after, you know, after a career of 10, 15 years, I had the opportunity to come to the United States again. And uh, that's how I ended up over here in 2015. Because I uh, spent the first 13 years of my life in Arkansas, I was interested to note in your bio that you spent some time as a Razorback. So first of all, to d the disgust of the other guys, I want to say Woo Pig Suey. Um, but secondly, how did you end up in Fayetteville? Yeah, I mean, we had a great, we, we, we met some wonderful people in Arkansas, a very, very good friend of mine, ex-military man, Barry Schneitman, uh, you know, took took us under his wing, looked after us. We We literally rocked up on a plane, you know, one day stayed in a holiday inn for three days and then just figured it out from there. So that's where we basically, we went to Little Rock first. Uh, there was two clubs, youth clubs merging in Little Rock. They'd asked me to come and run. So I was there to kind of oversee that transition and help that soccer club. Uh, unfortunately, the soccer club wasn't run very well. There wasn't much oversight and um, it ended up going bust. So uh, we were kind of in this space after about a year and a bit where, uh, a bit of turmoil, you know, as, as as is the way, unfortunately, in the game sometimes. Uh, but I was offered a job three hours up the road in Fayetteville at the University of Arkansas, uh, which I which I grabbed with, with both hands, and that was my introduction to NCAA women's college soccer as well. And uh, we spent eighteen months in Fayetteville, wonderful place to live. Um, as you say, as a Razorback, uh, seeing a completely different side of of sport from the collegiate level in terms of the football and the baseball and the softball and just really being ingrained in what it means to be in collegiate sports was a fantastic uh, start for me, really. Just on a, a side note, uh, when I was living there, my parents were going to travel on vacation to Arkansas from Scotland. They went to the travel yeah. agents and uh, they said that they wanted to go to Little Rock and this big warning sign came up on the screen saying Little Rock is not one of our more popular tourist destinations. Well, I, I can I can understand that. It's certainly probably an area that people, you know, most people coming from abroad would go, you know, to Disneyland or the Grand Canyon or whatever first. But we were <laughs> we were really lucky to go and spend some time there. And yeah. they've actually got their first Walmart there. Obviously, Arkansas is where uh, it was where Walmart originated. So yeah, that's uh, right. Where, where we were was store number one. So we got to see a bit of the history of Walmart as well. 
so I wanted to know what brought you to Jacksonville in particular, and is it the is it your first time here in this area? Yeah, so no, we're here before the pandemic. So we moved to when I left the University of Arkansas, we moved to Florida, um, here you know to Jacksonville for the first time, and um, you know Wales is a Wales is a very small country, but it's surrounded on three sides by by the ocean. Um, so, you know, for us to be close to the ocean and close to the beach was a big thing. And obviously Arkansas being landlocked in eight hours in every direction didn't quite hit that mark. So yeah, we took the opportunity to come down to Florida, uh, made, made Jacksonville our home, um, you know, came down here to St. Augustine and really it's probably the place that, uh, you know, me and the kids have felt, uh, more at home than anywhere else we've ever been. And I did take a little loan spell for a couple of years. Uh, to Norman, Oklahoma, uh, just as the pandemic hit. So they sent me on loan there for a little while. And uh, I was obviously very fortunate to work at OU for a couple of years in, in women's college soccer there. Uh, but when that ended, it was, uh, you know, a choice really of, of where else do we go. And there was only one place we wanted to be. So we, we came straight back and uh, we've been back for six months. Um, and as I say, great, we, we knew of the club and the Armada and all the great work that was going on. And uh, now with the men's team going pro and the, the women's team being announced, it's, it's a great time to be here. It's, it's a great time to be here indeed, David. And uh, thank you for coming on first and foremost. Um, touching on Wales, it's, it's such a beautiful country, but for a lot of Americans, they, they mostly know of uh, Wrexham and the TV show. Um, I'm not too far away from uh, Cardiff, where you went to, to university in uh, the pride of the West Country, um, Swindon to be exact, Swindon Town. If you've never heard of them, look them up. Um, but I just wanted, uh, since I'm an outsider, similar to you, um, we have kind of an outside perspective as far as the U.S. is concerned. But for those that don't know, can you please touch on what makes America so special for up-and-coming women players and also just touch on the collegiate level and how it kind of separates the U.S. Um, apart from other programs and countries as far as women's football goes? Yeah, absolutely. I mean traditionally the us has been probably the biggest superpower in women's football you know the title nine uh the title nine guidance that, that came out you know back in the back in the 80s and 70s and 80s really um set america on a different path to the rest of the world with equality and investment in women's sport um obviously the the us women's national team the 99ers won the world cup and that was really the explosion that took uh, soccer into a lot of hearts of american people not just you know, men's supporters or women's supporters. It was uh, it was the first time, obviously, on a on a national level that the US had won the Soccer World Cup. So that was the catalyst, really, for the next kind of 20, 22, 23 years that we've seen of growth and development on the, on a national scale. Um, there's been a professional league in one form or another uh, for most of that time. The current iteration, the National Women's Soccer League, is in its uh, I think eighth or ninth year. Uh, and going very, very strong. So, uh, you know, it's a legitimate dream of any young female player in America to to make it all the way through to professional players, to be a professional player. And I think two years ago, we had the first million-dollar uh, female player in Trinity Rodman. So oh, wow. every, you know, four or five years, we've seen these new benchmarks and these new ceilings broken. Um, and, it you know, it truly is a dream of a young seven-year-old girl kicking a ball around in America, and she can actually see a path all the way through collegiate soccer, all the way to the, the the women's national team. So that's not always the case in a lot of other more established soccer nations. Certainly wasn't the case in Wales in 2015 when I left. I, I remember a story. I um, 
I was at the World Cup with England in 2015, preparing for the semi-final in Japan with Japan. And I had a phone call from my daughter, who was 13 at the time, and she was in floods of tears, sadly. And I was like, "What's wrong? What's wrong, love?" And she said, "They won't let me play football, Dad." I said, "Who?" They said, "In school, they said girls don't play football." Mm. And you know, I took great delight in reminding her teacher that her dad was at the Women's World Cup preparing for the World Cup semi-final. But unfortunately, that was the you know that was the the view in Wales at the time in 2015. I mean, we're not going back even a, even a decade. So, you know, oh, wow. that, that shows you the difference between perhaps some of the views on women's sport in different parts of the world. And I think probably people in America just have seen it one way since its inception uh, and might not understand that women's soccer in Britain was banned uh, up until kind of the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, women weren't allowed to play at all. Never mind have their own clubs or teams to play on. So, you know, to be in women's football is to stand on the shoulders of, of hundreds of thousands of people who've worked in the shadows and, you know, fought to get a seat at the table. And, and what we're seeing now in the game is a is, is a fantastic doff of the cap to them. Um, but as I say, it's not always been easy uh, for people in the women's game. So uh, it's great to see a country like America embrace it and do what they're doing with every level of the game, really, from kids all the way up to professional. Absolutely. Yeah, that's incredible. I, I didn't have that understanding. That's uh, the things you, you just kind of either don't know or just take for granted here. Um, you know, one thing I want to ask you is uh, for, for any potential player that would be interested in the, in the women's team, um, what, are, what, are, what are the things that you would want to expect from your players? I think the most important thing, you know, certainly for me and for the club, uh, we, we want the team to represent the city of Jacksonville, we want it to represent the fans. You know, we we know that our fans have been through tough times. There's been ups, there's been downs, but they've never left our side. And I think, you know, with that comes a really strong bond. And I think it has to be more than just tactics or X's and O's, as we call it in the game. It's got to be more than just, you know, whether we're playing four defenders at the back or three defenders at the back. It's got to, it's got to be something more visceral. And I think for us, what we're talking to the players we're trying to recruit is, you know, we want to be exciting. We want we want people to come to the to the ground and, and get off the edge of their seat when we attack. And we want to see our players throwing their body in front of shots and doing everything really to represent, you know, what our fans have done. You know, the the tough times our fans have been through when they could have they could have jacked it in or they could have walked away, but they stood firm and, and jumped in front of a ball that was going to hit them square in the face or whatever. You know, we want our players to understand that. These are things our fans want to see. So there's a special type of player we need to recruit. We're, we're, we're obviously recruiting those players. They have to be quality soccer players as well. Uh, but they really got to understand the importance of what it means to pull on that shirt and, and represent the Armada. So that's where we're going to start. Now, one of the things that I was personally curious about, knowing knowing uh, you know the range of your background, the depth of your background in coaching, um, you know, what, what would you say is the difference, if any, in how you would coach a men's soccer team or a women's soccer team between those two? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's one of, it's one I've been asked a lot because the first 15 years of my career I spent in men's football, um, mainly in youth development, uh, but also, you know, in collegiate sports and professional sports as well. Uh, I think for me, one of the most important parts of coaching either men or women is to build that rapport, build that strong rapport and build a trust. Um, and you can only do that you know, with a level of competency, you know, at a certain level of the game, players want to know 
you know, what you know and how you can help them, especially on the men's side. Um, but I think as well, you know, perhaps in the female game, it wouldn't be remiss of me to say that, you know, they want to know that you care first. They want to know that, you know, there's a level of psychological safety within the group where you're not going to put them on the spot and you're not going to uh, disregard, you know, their feelings or they want they want to know why something is the way it is. And I think you're seeing that on the men's side now as well. Um, maybe back 20 years ago, the blokes would tend to just get on with it and, you know, I'll do whatever I'm told to do or or I'll do whatever I want more more than likely. Uh, but I think now there's a level of investment and I think that's just, you know, as generations change as well, people are more invested in why they're doing things, less likely just to do things because they're told. So I think for me, it's about developing that rapport um, and whether that's men's or women's, uh, but making sure that, you know, the players understand that there's a level of competency uh, first and foremost, because without that, no one's, no one's going to follow the plan. Uh, but you could have the best plan in the world if people don't believe in you as a person and that you're going to live your values, then they're not going to follow that either. So it's definitely a balancing act for sure. And uh, David, how do you um, keep your players motivated when times get tough? We all know uh, when things are good, um, it, it, it looks easy. But when things do get tough and you're hitting a rough patch, do you have any kind of um, routines or anything that you do to keep your players motivated during them, them tough times? Yeah, that's a really good question because I think sometimes we have a little bit of a romantic view on motivation that, you know, as players get higher up the levels, they, they almost become autonomous robots and they're just always motivated. And that's part of what being a professional is. And to a certain degree, I can understand the conventional wisdom. But at the same time, I think it's it's a human business and it's about connection. Everybody is, you know, you think about all the people, people listening and think about all the people you know, everybody's. Uh, after something different everybody's interested in something different everybody likes something different um, and dislikes something different and I think for me it's about tapping into you know the, those very kind of visceral reasons why people do what they do and and to be able to motivate high performers and sports men and women you've really got to get behind the the mask of of what you see sometimes and sometimes it's a lot more complicated than just I want to be a good footballer or I want to earn you know, huge amounts of money or I want to win trophies. Sometimes there's a, you know, a, a different kind of channel that you can tap into. And really when adversity hits, that's when, that's when that is tested. You know, like you say, everybody can be, can be good on a good day, but you know, it's very, very difficult to perform at the highest level and perform week in, week out and train every day and recover every day and make difficult choices that probably the man and woman in the street doesn't even think about, you know, if we want to go and have a beer or if we want to, you know, sit and, uh, you know, have a Mexican meal or whatever at a restaurant. We, we just do it, don't we? But I think when you devote your life to high-performance sport, it can be very, very different. So this idea of motivation is very, very different as well. I think you have to be prepared to delay the onset uh, of success and gratification. And that's not something in the modern world that we're good at doing anymore, is it? Social media has taught us anything. It's instant gratification and immediate hit of dopamine because somebody's liked our post or, or you know, we've we've liked something we've seen. So I think it is sometimes there's a dichotomy there between uh, what it means to be an elite performer and, and you know, living in the, in the normal world like most of us do. But uh, I think for me, it's when you get those moments of adversity and they will come, we will have them. It won't, it won't just be a simple, you know, we won't just start playing with this team and win every game and never concede a goal. It's, there's going to be ups and downs. 
But I think once you've got past that initial phase, you then start to look into the idea of building momentum. And that's where, you know, that's where I'm looking at Section 904 and our fans and everybody who's going to come out and support us. Because once we get over that initial phase, whether it's whether it's perfection and wins, 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 or whether it's difficult, we'll get into that phase where we begin to build momentum. And that's when we'll really know where, where we are and, and where we're going. So that's an exciting process. It's an exciting process for the players. It's an exciting process for the staff. Um, uh, you know, and it, it, there's no guarantees. There's no guarantees in this game. We can have the best game plan. We can have the best players at times. You can still lose a game of football on any given day, on a, a game of soccer on any given day. So I think when you mix all that in, um, you know, and you add in all those moving parts, that's why we do what we do, I think. It's kind of like we had talked about uh, previously uh, off air. It's about you know everybody being on the bus, right, and being being yeah. on that journey. Yeah, yeah. I've used this analogy a few times. I think I do like the idea of it being, you know, a, a bit like a journey, and it might be alien to a few people in, you know, in this part of the world because the transport um, the transport mechanisms in Britain, you know, buses, trains, cars, you know, they're all kind of hand in hand. You jump on a bus as, as you know as easy as you jump on a plane really here in North America. So I like the idea of of you know the bus going in the right direction and everybody being on it. Everybody's got a seat, you know, everybody's facing the right direction. We're all going the same place. And and ultimately, you know, sometimes the bus stops, a couple of people get off, a couple of new people get on. That is just the natural order of things. But you know, it's really important that um, you know, everybody is, you know, on the bus and going in the right direction. And once you get that. Uh, you can achieve amazing things. And I wouldn't put a ceiling on it. You know, I wouldn't say that we're setting a goal on, we're going to go out and do this this season, or we're going to go out and set a goal on. That's what success looks like. Success for this team and for this new uh, women's team could could mean a million things. It could be a lot of things. One thing I think it definitely means is we connect with the community. The community come out and support. And when when people leave the stadium with their, with their fans, with their friends or their fans or their, you know, the fellow people, they go away with a smile on their face thinking, I want to come back and I want to see more of that. Uh, and if we've won, brilliant. That's what we're going to try and do. Um, but we, we could do just as much of that, you know, drawing a game or tying a game as well. So, uh, you know, it's a very fine balance, but make no mistake, we're here to win. We want to win, um, but we want to entertain and we want people to feel like they're part of it as well. Nice one, David. And uh, that's a really good analogy. But I think the the listeners would like to know: Can this bus go under fifty miles per hour? That's fantastic. You've actually you've actually touched on something there because that's actually my favourite movie of all time, <laughs> and I've I've got a lot of stick over the years for saying that it's uh, the best movie ever made. So Cold it definitely it definitely introduced us to uh, Sandra Bullock and uh, one of Keanu Reeves's better ones, I think, as well. So I'm I'm all for that. Yeah, I'm all for that. Yeah, I'll show my age by saying I remember seeing that in the theatre. I think twice. <laughs> I think I think you show your age by saying theater instead of cinema, mate. So that's <laughs> theater, <laughs> Netflix and chill these days. <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh dear. Uh, so, David, in one of our recent episodes, uh, Armada Club President Nathan Walter, he talked with us about the style of play being the Armada style. And I want to ask you, uh, have you become familiar with that so far? And, and what could you tell us about it? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I've been very fortunate. Obviously, I spent a little bit of time around uh, around Tommy Kay. And, and any time I get a chance to sit down and talk 
talk soccer with Tommy, I'm I'm going to take that opportunity because he has a phenomenal mind for the game and just sees it in such a way that I think what he's done for me is helped me bring this idea of the Armada way to life. And of course, we have a, a playing DNA and we have a you know a slideshow and we have you know we have different ways of doing things: attacking, defending, transitioning, whatever it might be, right? But I think what Tommy's done for me is is be able to bring it off the page and really you know, inspire my way of thinking in terms of, it might look slightly different in terms of the men's and women's teams. We might have a, a different system. You know, we might not play exactly the same in terms of four at the back or three at the back or whatever it might be, but ultimately the principles of play will remain the same. You know, there'll be there'll be strong attacking ethic. There'll be, you know, a, a huge counter-pressing element where we try to win the ball back as quick as we can, as high as we can up the pitch. And that's another reason why I think the fans will love what they see from both teams because, you know, that's the way the modern game is going. Um, you know, it's fans want to be entertained. They want to see good uh, good soccer as well. And I think when you start to get some of these fast combination plays and, uh, you know, one-touch passes around the corner, crosses that flash across the box and people taking volleys out of the air instead of bringing it down. You know, these are our versions of home runs and slam dunks in other sports. So, you know, we, we might not be able to have the buzzer beater as such, but, you know, every time a corner comes in the box and it's headed away and, you know, it's about to fall on someone's foot, everybody knows that feeling of, uh, you know, hitting it out of the air and smashing it in off the other side of the crossbar. And We're going to be prioritising these kinds of moments and making sure that when they come, our players are, are prepared and trained and ready to take them. So there's very exciting style. It's a very exciting high-pressing way of playing soccer and, you know, all energy. Um, you know, it's it's become the modern way of playing and that's certainly going to be our style as well. That's certainly all I could ask for. Um, and you know, a team with Tommy last... Cates, we all dream yeah. of a team with Tommy Cates. If only, sure. if only, yeah, if only. Uh, so one last question I had for you was about, um, for this inaugural women's team, uh, could you tell us what schools you might have been in contact with so far to make up that team? Yeah, of course. I mean, recruitment's a, a huge part of this when you when you start a team, obviously. You know, you're building a roster. Um, you know, I, ca I can't go into details on, on the individuals, obviously, at this time, but my, my background's in the Power Five. I've spent most of my time in the SEC, the Big 12, and in and around the Power Five schools. So I have a lot of good connections and a lot of friends working at those programs. Uh, some of which I've reached out to and, and, and leaned up upon for advice and support, but also to talk to about recruiting. And I think the best programs in the country want their players in the best environments. They want to know that if the players are playing summer ball, then, you know, they're in professional environments where they're being taken care of on and off the pitch. And obviously we at Armada provide that in terms of the holistic support around the player, whether it's chiropractic services, medical services, you know, prehab services, whatever the players need outside of the training lines they, they're going to get. So, you know, we're, again, we're not putting a ceiling on that either. But, you know, I can give you the strategy. I can tell you what we're thinking as a club. We want to recruit a, a large base of the players from the local area. We want to attract all the top players from, from Jacksonville who have gone on and played soccer in college and, and, you know, maybe have left the area and the youth clubs. We have great youth clubs in this area, you know, Prime, Ancient City, JFC. We have fantastic soccer here. And we have some of those players graduating from those clubs, going into big, big schools and, and top programs. We want to bring them back home. We want to give them a stage where they can play 
in front of their extended family and friends. Maybe some people who haven't been able to see them play in college yet or, or be able to travel to see them play in their conference play. So I just love the idea of bringing them home and bringing them here and having everybody come out and having this, having everybody behind our players and behind the team. Uh, so that's the strategy. That's what we're doing. And every day we're working hard to, to build that roster. And hopefully before too long, we'll be able to announce uh, the first signings. So when exactly will the uh, WPSL season start? Well, we're still we're still waiting to to have all that, all that confirmed, and there's obviously some you know information embargoes that the league set in terms of when that stuff comes out. So we're being very respectful of that process at the moment, but we know that we're preparing for a start in May, and our season will run May June with playoffs in July. So you know there's a lot of planning going on behind the scenes at the moment. We know we've only got. Uh, you know, probably in the region of uh, maybe 12, 12 weeks of competitive play. So, you know, probably something like 60, 60 to 64 training sessions with, you know, eight or nine games. And, and when you break that down into various uh, mesocycles and microcycles of technical and tactical training, it's not actually a lot of contact time. So uh, every, every, every item is being looked at and every, you know, to try and draw out every, every little detail that we can so we hit the ground uh, flying you know when the players do arrive in Jacksonville in early May uh, and rest assured we, we're also making the final touches to our high performance staff which will be excellent um, and then me and the staff will be working hard in the next month or two to put the meat on the bones for that stuff before the players even arrive. Good stuff, good stuff. And uh, a last question from me. I mean, we couldn't have somebody on from Wales without asking what you think about what's happening with Wrexham. And do you think there's anything that the Armada could learn from them, especially regarding how they're developing their women's team, uh, community involvement and such like? Yeah, of course. I mean, what a great story. What a fantastic story. And, you know, I'm pretty sure everybody will have seen the, the Netflix documentary by now. And if not, I would definitely encourage people to go out and, and find that. Because what the what this what this story has done is really shone a light on what community soccer can be and, and what soccer outside of the Premier League can be. And you know, it's so much more than the tactical side or the you know, the result on a Saturday. That's that's not to take away from from the wins and losses, of course, because that's ultimately the aim of the game. But you know, we what we see on the on the Netflix documentary is how much the game is ingrained in the local community, what it means to people, and we see that here in in Jacksonville with our own fans. I saw it Sunday, straight up, what it means to people. As I'm standing sitting in the car outside, waiting to to kind of come into the thing, I'm seeing I'm seeing groups of people, friends, just people who haven't seen each other for a while, just getting together, all wearing their gear and just bounding into this place where they can't wait to be surrounded by, you know, two, 300 other people who all share this passion together. And what the Wrexham documentary has done is, is shine a light on, on all the different stories and the different individuals behind, you know, what it means to support a team. Um, and hopefully, you know, hopefully that will long may that continue because, you know, you, the U S and the UK different, you know, the UK soccer has been around for almost, 170 years you know maybe not as long a heritage in in the US but the fandom here and the way people support their teams you know is is on on parity with with some of those clubs in those lower leagues and 
I think that that's something that needs to be celebrated. It's something that needs to be that needs to be kept, and it's something. It's what makes the game the game. It's why soccer is the most popular game in the world. Why it's played in every country. Why it's on the TV in every country. It isn't just because of the superstar players. It's because of the fans. Soccer would be nothing without the fans, and we saw that in the pandemic. We saw empty stadiums, and it wasn't the same. So, yeah, really pleased for for Wrexham as a club. Really pleased for my home country in, in Wales as well. The, I know North Wales, the tourism has gone through the roof and now people from all around the world are, are trying to book flights to Wrexham, as you said earlier, because they want to go and see the, where, it, where it's happening for real. And, you know, that's only great for the country of Wales as well. Yeah, I think with that, David, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. Um, you know, it, it's that that love for, for lower league. It's not about, you know, being in the Premier League or being at the, you know, at the highest level. Um, we, this is something that you know, we as a group have lived right with the the ups and downs and the uh, the fortunes of the armada and, and that's the one thing i always try to tell people like yeah. watch welcome to Wrexham. this is what it's about right you, yeah. you see it you know the community um involvement and, and just the passion and so um and i don't think a lot of the the american audience you know really uh you know sort of gets that as far as you know you support your local team it's not about you know well, you know, I'm a fan of the Dallas Cowboys and, you know, and I like this team too. And I like that. You, know, you support your local team through thick and thin. And I think the, uh, the Welcome to Wrexham series really shows that, you know, to you know, the level that they had been at and the, what they're aspiring to. I hope they don't lose that magic as they uh, continue to uh, work their way up the, uh, the league structure. And it is magic. You're right. It, what, what people have to understand as well is Wrexham is still a relatively – small club in terms of the EPL, but still mm-hmm. a big club in terms of professional sport and professional football in the UK. There's another, even below Wrexham where they are now, there's another six or seven levels right. of teams who, and, and again, for me, this is why I'm so I'm so happy and feel so at home here already with the Armada because my upbringing was through the non-league, you know, mm-hmm. the leagues that aren't yet professional. There's a phenomenal club in Wales called Merthyr Town. Mm-hmm. And I would encourage everybody to, again, go out and do even more digging and look at Merthyr Town because Merthyr actually played in European competition against nice. uh, at Italian giants Atalanta. You know, mm-hmm. they actually got qualified that far that they got to play against Atalanta after winning the Welsh Cup one year. So there's huge heritage in these non-league clubs and great support in these non-league clubs. And that's exactly what I'm seeing here in the Armada. And it makes me feel right at home. It's brilliant. Yeah, there's also a great series that I can recommend on YouTube called A Bunch of Amateurs um, about uh, dorking. Mm. Um, I can't remember the guys who's the owner and head coach. He's quite a character. But if you get a chance, uh, it's called A Bunch of Amateurs on uh, YouTube. And they, they do a, a, a series kind of almost like Welcome to Wrexham. Uh, it's, it's really good stuff. But it's, you know, they're, they're in the, the, the league, I think, where uh, Wrexham started. And they're still there. Um, and I think when the series started, they were – they were playing, you know, the likes of Wrexham and things like that. So that's really, if you have a few, I know you, you probably don't have a lot of time in your schedule, but that's another uh, another good one to look up. All right, so we're done with the hard-hitting questions. We're going to get to our, our question of the season. What are your feelings on pineapple on pizza? Yes or no? Well, definitely pizza. Probably too much pizza in my life, to be honest. But uh, <laughs> Don't dodge yeah. the question. Do I have to yes, pick no. one or the other? Do I have to no, pick pine, pineapple pi- pizza? No, pineapple on the pizza. Oh, no, no, no. no. Oh, okay. So many other good things to put on it first. Good man. Not, not good man. Oh, I want to hear, hear the other good thing to put on it. 
I want to hear your other good thing to put yeah, on. Yeah, what, what do you like on your pizza? Um, well, probably just the typical, I suppose, the pepperoni and the the meat lovers and whatever goes on there. I, I actually let you in on a little secret. This is probably not going to put me in the best light, but uh-uh. in, Wales, in Wales, we uh, we don't really have a national dish. Our national dish is grilled cheese. So that you know, <laughs> that, 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 that's that's actually our official national dish. So I think when when you grow up in Wales in the nineties, you know, man would make you sort of get two pieces of bread, chuck some butter on it, and make a sandwich out of anything. And I've actually been known, and my mum won't let me forget this. I've actually been known to eat a pizza sandwich once. Yeah. So that's you know that's probably a first. But uh, yeah, I'd like to say my um, my nutritional advice and, and thing has got a little bit better over the years, but probably not. So. I'm I'm a, a grilled cheese aficionado myself. One, yeah. one good thing I can recommend for you with leftover pizza, you mentioned the pizza sandwich. You cut the leftover pizza up in uh, into small pieces and yeah. serve it in an omelet. Cool. Oh wow, uh, pizza yeah. eggs. Yeah, that's a fun. Never heard of that. That's good. Little, yeah. little, Welcome little, to America. Yeah. yeah, we we cover all kinds of things here. We're not just a, a, a podcast <laughs> just, about all things Jackson. <laughs> yeah, not just all things Jackson Armada. We do have you know we do have content that we have to to fill and things like that. Culture. Men of culture, just say that. Yeah, for sure. You never know. You never know what you're going to get here. So, David, we'll do we, an episode on uh on best chili in the town. Yeah, well, yeah, we're yeah we're gonna yeah we'll do that. We we did we were doing uh during the season last year we were do, doing food uh food reports, scran reports from uh all the different yeah yeah on all the different away uh venues in the uh in yeah. the NPSL Sunshine Conference. So or yeah, so we'll see uh see what this season brings. David, thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy man and hopefully we can have you back on soon. No, thank, thank you, you so much. I really appreciate you guys. You do a great job. I've listened to a couple of episodes and really appreciate you coming uh, asking me on. All right, great. Like I said, we hope to have you back on soon. So that was Coach David Goff. So what do you guys have to say about that? Uh, I was pretty impressed. Um, you know, I, I did I did some research on David, obviously, leading up into the episode, uh, up into this episode. He's got a ton of experience, uh, you know, at different levels. And uh, so I'm, I'm hopeful that he's going to do good things for the women's team. I, I think women's soccer and just in general is is not easy. I've, you know, seen at least other local clubs and stuff like that. They don't exactly do well. Um, but uh, but hopefully, you know, he could do something. Just listening to him has got me excited, well, as excited as I can be about this upcoming season. <laughs> no. that's, that's, that's Ian's level of excitement. He's, yeah. <laughs> he's on the edge of his seat. <laughs> Halfway oh, into bed. Halfway in the bed, yeah. He sat up in bed. Oh, my goodness. I I almost cracked a smile. Well, I I think this is going to be something that Jacksonville hasn't seen before, is is women's soccer at this level. Um, And, you know, know, if if they're following the Armada way, they are going to treat those players, even though they may not be professionals, they're going to treat them as if they're in a professional program. So there's going to be um, high expectations of, of the players. And I think also there's going to be an expectation of what the Armada delivers. So I think that's what has set us apart from a lot of the uh, other clubs in the NPSL, at least in our areas, is how much we run it as a professional organization. Well, I'm, I'm just excited for this whole region and what it means for, for young women, uh, young girls, because we've already been um, treated to a lot of talent that's come from the area, like uh, Morgan, so much talent. And it's just another outlook for uh, 
these women in the development of football and it's just going to help the region. And, and what a treat for the young ladies too, playing in Jacksonville with our support because we, we've got some of the most passionate fans in the bloody country. I don't care what anybody says. And I, I'm pretty sure that will go on to, to form its own thing. But it's, uh, it's just an amazing time. And David seems like a solid bloke. So I'm excited all the way around. Are you as excited as Ian is, though? That's the question. I don't know. It's pretty hard to beat. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I want to thank you all for uh, for joining and thank everyone for listening. So we're going to close this one out as we always do with a Go Armada. Go ladies. Vamos, ladies. Go on yourself, boys and girls in blue. Uh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. All right, take care, everyone.